This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Sexy and Surreal, a David Lynch and David Cronenberg podcast. I'm Joe Lipset, and I'm joined by Terry Menard. Hey, Joe. So I have a question. What's that? How do you feel about dipping your day-old pizza in coffee? <laughs> Is that one of the grossest things about this movie? I, you know, it just might be. Although I have to say, I do love cold pizza the next day. Oh, absolutely. But not dipping it in what would normally be a warm beverage. Yeah, that's 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 not a choice I would probably make, no. But Mm-mm. there's a lot of things in here that have choices that I probably would not have made. So I think it's par for the course. <laughs> Right. Yes, folks, we are talking about the David Cronenberg side of the podcast, and we are tackling Videodrome just in time for its 40th anniversary this year, Terry. 40th anniversary. Oh, my God. It's almost as old as I am. It's kind of wild, hey? I mean, there's a lot about this movie that feels very steeped in 80s culture, but I think at the same time, when we look at it, if you substitute television uh, frequencies for something like streaming cable wars, you can definitely still see the analogy. No, this is definitely a prescient uh, film for society today. I was I I was thinking as I was watching this, I was like, if this were to be made today, mm-hmm. what would it be about? And it would kind of be about like dark web, I think, but also like mm. the way that we sit there and just passively take in entertainment, like through TikTok, which I'm yes. I'm guilty of as well. But just there's the the image right from the very beginning of this movie, and I, I know we're jumping in, but like there's the image from right from the beginning of this film where. We're talking about civic TV and it's the Mm -hmm. TV you take to bed. And it's an image of this man with basically this giant, you know, cathode ray, the big cathode ray TVs in his lap in bed. And I'm like, okay, Hmm. I am literally going to go to bed tonight and I'm just going (laughs) to take my phone and scroll through TikTok for about 30 minutes before I go to bed. It feels of the time in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. but there's definitely themes here that I think are just as important and interesting today with this film. And that's why I think it's so fascinating. Yeah. So I'm curious. I mean, obviously, we're doing this chronologically so that we can watch the growth and see how the careers of these two respective artists is evolving. Do you feel like this is the kind of big metric step up for Cronenberg? Absolutely, I do. Um, You know, I was I was thinking as I was watching this that we have a situation where when you look at like Rabid and you look at like Shivers and you see the kind of step up between the the two in terms of like the filmmaking style. I mean, Mm -hmm. not necessarily like the the content, but like they feel like iterations on each other in some ways. And as I was watching this, I was getting Scanner vibes and I didn't particularly care for Scanner. I thought it was fine. Mm -hmm. But this movie definitely takes sort of um, some of the the noir aesthetics i would say and the noir storytelling that kind of permeated in scanners and i think kind of iterates on that again to make a movie that is i I didn't realize distributed by universal pictures so like right this is a big studio (laughs) movie almost Mm -hmm. and i'm like this feels too dirty for something (laughs) universal be putting out (laughs) <laughs> well, I appreciate the the scanner's callback because, yeah, I mean, part of me, we we were both lukewarm half and half on that movie when we talked about it the last time we talked about Cronenberg. Mm-hmm. 
and you can definitely see a lot of the genesis here, right? The kind of uh, the war between Barry Convex versus Brian Oblivion for the kind yeah. of state of the world. And we're using sort of not quite psychic phenomenon, but it's sort of like that where we're, we're transmitting tumors through the radio frequencies at people's televisions. But to me, I guess one of the more interesting things is... It's less about the corporate warfare and more about how Cronenberg is fusing these kinds of sensibilities about like body horror and technology, but he's still got that kind of grosso, low budget. I don't know. There's there's something so delectably um, just gross, icky teenager kind of, ooh, well, what if the main adversary of this film turns out to be just a body full of tumors? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I it's boy. <laughs> I don't even I don't even know where to go from there, Joe. I was going to yes. say the problem with this movie is like, well, where do you start? There's so much going on. Yeah. Well, there's two things. One, I just want to make an offhanded comment that this is one of the the reasons why I really like our, the title of our podcast, because this movie is very sexy and surreal at the mm -hmm. same time. And this definitely ties into that, I think, more so than anything I've seen from Cronenberg so far. Like, sure, there's been sensuality in in his his uh, previous movies, particularly mm -hmm. the Shivers and Rabbit. But like here, it feels like we have really embraced being what the fuck surreal, but also kind of sexy in like a dangerous, dirty sort of way. Mm -hmm. And I find that I find that really fascinating because I know that Cronenberg's career after this is going to continue to kind of incorporate that kind of feel to it. So I'm, I'm really excited to dig in further. So that was like my first thing. I was like, I literally wrote a note in bold. This really fits our title of our, of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. And it's adult, right? I mean, we've talked yeah. about sex as a kind of infection or something that just takes over your brain because it's literally altering your body's chemistry. And I think there's still a little bit of that here. But what I really mm -hmm. like about the Max Ren, Nikki Brand relationship is how it also feels kind of appropriately adult. You know, there's a little bit of kink, a little bit of s and m in this you know one of the moments that always just feels so fucking authentic to me is when nikki comes over to max's place and she's just going through his video cassettes and she just goes do you have any porno it gets me in the mm. mood i love that because it's I, I think a lot of times we see and i mean i it's weird because these are kind of particularly max ren but also to some maybe a lesser degree Nikki, they're both kind of like on the seedier side of, of society. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. So it's to me, there's that aspect of it. But this film also sort of normalizes the idea that that adults are sexual beings and yes. sexual beings sometimes like to do kink like that. That shot of them laying there as he is kind of piercing her ears was mm -hmm. like, oh, it's sexy. It's so sensual. Yeah. Yeah, I I really like it. And I think it's important that. You know, one of the things I lament every single time I watch this movie is how fucking good Debbie Harry is and how little of her we actually get because oh. she's very present in the first part of the film. And then she kind of fucks off because that's what the story needs her to do. And, you know, some people take issue with the fact that we only really even see Nikki herself as a human being for a part of the film. And then we see her as 
a hallucination, something else, uh, a trapping of the video drum frequency later. But she's really dynamic. Like she's a fantastically Incredible. charismatic performer. And these moments, there is, there's like an adult sensuality that really sells why we miss her later on and how it kind of affects or drives Max's actions later. Yeah, what I what I also really like about her is that there's a vulnerability to her in terms of like being intimate. Mm -hmm. So the fact that she can sit there and she can kind of pull down her her dress and show the scars on her neck. Right. That is a very intimate thing to do with someone to to mm -hmm. show to like kind of be that vulnerable that you're showing this is kind of something that gets me off. Right. And that's particularly when something that is it is I think looked at with like a puritanical eye outside mm -hmm. of particular communities the fact that she can do that so quickly and just so effortlessly just i don't know she's very i think you said it she has so much charisma she's very charismatic and the screen just eats her up well that and the fact that by exposing her her recent wounds right and saying you know there's this other guy who gave them to me. The movie acknowledges that she is engaging in casual sex with multiple partners. Yes. And there's no slut shaminess to it at all. No, not at all. But, you know, so I I, I think it's important also that you, you kind of brought up a critique of this is the fact that she does disappear through pretty much most of the movie. And I agree. Mm -hmm. However, what I do enjoy about the character that she is playing is that, again, tying it back to sort of noir, which jumped out at me almost immediately when I was watching this film, is she is kind of the femme fatale, but in a subversive yeah. way. She is mm -hmm. she's introduced in this talk show and she's wearing a red dress. And I, it, it kind of bothered me that he's he basically is saying like, well, you're inviting my look because you're wearing mm -hmm. something to stimulate. So I was like, OK, that's a little... <laughs> That's a little uh, okay. Nineteen eighties. I I get what's happening here, but that's but watching it with sort of like a twenty twenty three eye. It's like, mm. well, but Max is also a fucking pervert, and he's like, yeah, he is kind of a, a despicable sleazy asshole, right? Yeah, absolutely. But she's she's wearing the kind of like classic eye catching mm -hmm. femme fatale dress, but she is not in the beginning. She goes to him. She is interested in what he is seeing in this like image that is being broadcasted. Uh, that his 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 patron, his friend. Oh my god! I'm saying fucking patron. <laughs> um, but by the end of the movie, she becomes through this hallucinatory um, aspect becomes the kind of femme fatale that is leading him along. That is that is using her sexuality to entice him to to go further into what's basically um, corporate espionage between two different people that want to destroy everything and so it, it ties into that same kind of um character design that is in a lot of uh noirs from the 40s and above mm -hmm. what i like about it though too is that it subverts that so nikki both mm. is and isn't the femme fatale and then of course we have one other sort of female character of note and that's bianca oblivion and she is also kind of a femme fatale who is yeah. not afraid of weaponizing her looks and her sexuality and her position of privilege to get max to do things that she wants but she looks like the good girl because she's not dressed in red she's got exactly. her hair up in the bun and everything so the movie is very savvy in how it's deploying these women characters 
Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up because there is an infographic that um, BFI.org had had put up about what exactly is noir, because that mm. is a trapping that gets tossed oh, around sure. a whole lot. Like, oh, gosh, this is so noir. This is so noir. And it's typically used for like the way things are shot or the like the, the, the shadows or sometimes when things mm -hmm. are throwback to like black and white and using, uh, you know, that kind of stuff like that is a, typically what people talk about in terms of noir. Sure. But if you look at like the elements of it, Two of the elements that BFI has has um, annotated as well, there's woman one who is bad and beautiful and woman two who is good and bland. And so we have these kind of archetypes here where initially Nikki is sort of like the bad and beautiful. Like she's wearing mm -hmm. red. She's interested in kinky sex. She is, right. you know, sort of embracing that sort of feel. And then on the surface, Bianca seems to be the opposite of her, right? The kind mm -hmm. of she's put together. Yes, she is also there's a, a hint of danger to her, but she does come across initially as sort of bland. You're like, she's just the daughter of this, of mm -hmm. this doctor. But then she too starts to like, turn into that femme fatale idea as well. And I just I, I think it is so fascinating when you when when you look at this movie through that sort of lens. Yeah, absolutely. Also, I, I love <laughs> the qualifier, good and bland. <laughs> Just <laughs> yeah. let no one ever describe me that way because, oh, horrifying. <laughs> I know, that's a read for sure. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> okay, so yeah, be, before we really get to the Bianca of it all, you know, we're introduced to Max as this guy who is soliciting hard stuff, right? He's not mm -hmm. interested in Masha's soft stuff, and he needs things that are going to stand out because he's running this fledgling small scale with big aspirations civic tv out of toronto trying to compete with the international bodies there's a lot of canadianness in his uh basically how max is trying to compete with larger bodies it's very canadian kind of inferiority complex but i love the idea that the pirate signal is secretly coming from pittsburgh because of course the horrific snuff tv would be coming from the states <laughs> right and i i do love that initially it's they they, they think it's coming from like malaysia and whatnot mm -hmm. and then it's like oh we got to go to pittsburgh and like i don't even know what's going to happen in pittsburgh it's almost like a <laughs> like pittsburgh is is like some den of of evil in the center and like it's the, the way it's described for pirate yes. signals <laughs> <laughs> like the fact she's like she wants to go there he's like you want to you want to go to pittsburgh as if like she's saying she wants to go to some gulag in in, in russia or something right it's, it's, the way they describe <laughs> it is just it it made me chuckle it's very funny yeah <laughs> oh um so what do you make of this conversation that Professor Brian Oblivion is making? So we're introduced kind of like the central themes of the film are presented in very high philosophy when Max goes on this arena TV daytime talk show. So so he meets Nikki and obviously he's instantly smitten with her. He wants to fuck her. He's not even really listening to what she's saying. But then we also have Professor Brian Oblivion, who only appears on television, on television. Initially, like, I should have known that he was going to be, like, an important character. I was like, this is a really kind of wacko character to just introduce for one scene. Mm -hmm. And I, I just thought he was he was supposed to be, like, the kind of stand-in for morally demonizing what 
what Max is doing, right? Oh, like, okay. That's what I thought his his role was initially, because he's like talking about how TV has become the retina of the mind's eye. Like, I love this dialogue that that, oh. <laughs> that Cronenberg uses in the movies. It simultaneously sings, but it's also so over the top and heady. You're just yeah. like, ah, oh, it feels like a masturbatory wank. It does. <laughs> it's very writerly, I would say, in, in mm-hmm. some ways. Like it's it's definitely not how like normal people would talk. No. But I think I think it's it's so fascinating that he talks about how he says that he refuses to be on TV. Of course, he is on TV as he is saying mm-hmm. this, but he has to be on TV on TV because he can't physically be on TV. And so that whole thing was just like, <laughs> what? What what is happening here? What are you doing? Of course, it, it it pays off later, but like this initial. This initial thing just had me like laughing at the fact that it's okay for him to be on a TV on TV because then he's not actually physically on TV. Yeah. I was like, what is going on here? One of my favorite things in rewatching this movie, because I've seen this a bunch of times. If you get a chance to rewatch it, pay close attention to the host, Rena King's reactions, because she has no fucking idea what brian oblivion is saying so she's like hmm interesting yes okay that's <laughs> very much a stand-in for the audience right absolutely yeah i i do i you know i'm lament i was lamenting i think before we started recording that i wished i had time to like watch this again because i feel as if it's one of those movies that benefits multiple viewings is mm-hmm. what i'm kind of gathering from this because there's a lot there's a lot of things going on here, and it was very hard for me to just latch on to one specific thing because right. I just found myself going in a million different directions. It, the way that the script sort of moves in a million different directions before tying it all together, it just – I don't know. It's, there's something masterful about this movie. It's honestly so far my favorite of the Cronenberg films. Okay. I can see it. I mean, this definitely feels like – as I mentioned, a good synthesis of some of the things he's previously explored, but Mm. it has a firmer hand on it. Like all of the advances that we noticed in the brood, I think are really coming into play here, but the story is sharper, more mature. It's somehow more savvy. Like this feels both commercial, but still deeply personal. Yeah. On the the personal side, I did do a little bit of of digging and I didn't realize this, but his father, Milton, mm-hmm. contributed to a bunch of Canadian pulp magazines, uh, Ooh, greatest okay. detective cases, famous crime cases. He edited a magazine called Big Detective Cases as well in the 1940s. And so I think that as we're starting to like go through his filmography, uh, David's uh, filmography, and seeing the way that he has cast sort of detective type roles in in some of his movies, but in particular, I'm thinking about like Scanners, right? Mm-hmm. But there's always like a, a central mystery behind it. Like in The Brood, what is happening with the man's wife? In Scanners, it's like what is going on with these people that could potentially mind control people? Mm-hmm. Here, it's this idea of this errant satellite image that is coming through and what is going on here. And the mystery always sort of builds on itself. And so I'm, I'm seeing this as very personal in that he probably, I would assume David has grew up reading, you know, a bunch of noir or at least being around it because of his father mm-hmm. working on detective cases and stuff. And so I see that sort of kernel continuing here on a, on a more personal, probably personal level. Right. So what do you make of this central mystery, like the conflict between the sort of two different warring philosophies and 
it, it's a bit of a leading question, I'll admit, because every time I watch this, I feel like Spectacular Optical, the Barry Convex, um, mm. <laughs> literal fronted by sunglasses, but actually doing chips for <laughs> missiles for NATO. It's so ridiculous kind of Cold War related stuff. It is. But I always end up siding with the Oblivions, even though at the end of the day, I think they're also using Max as much as the other side. They absolutely are. I think there's like competing ideologies and it's sort of, in a way, in terms of like the the themes, I was sort of getting the uh, like cyberpunk feel to it. Oh, yeah. It's like mm-hmm. we have the little people that are going about their, their normal days that maybe stumble upon something. And it's, it's basically two warring ideas, philosophies. And that's that the, the idea of the philosophy is such an important uh, catalyst to this, this movie as well, because there's that, there's that moment when Max talks to Masha and he's asking her, she's of course the, the producer of these soft core Right. Uh, pornography type things. And he's asking her to find out to get him in touch with whoever is broadcasting this this feed. And she kind of tells him, stay away from this, because unlike you and what you're doing here, he has a philosophy. And mm-hmm. that philosophy can be dangerous because it's something that you can grab onto. And so as I was watching this and I was seeing the the cathode ray mission and their idea of <laughs> getting people indoctrinated into cathoid rays, I think. Well, it's basically the idea that unhoused people don't have access to television. And if you don't have access to TV, then you're missing out on the culture, right? Like you're falling yeah. off of the grid. I think the the modern day equivalency would be if you don't have the internet, if you can't right. get onto TikTok or social media or something like that. Yeah, so we, we have that ideology, and then we also have the competing one by the sunglass manufacturer, which again brought me back to, I think there's like a, a, a moment in Scanners where the company is doing involved in a whole bunch of things that are both helpful to people, but then mm-hmm. also destroying people. And that's the kind of the yep. same way it is here, where they're making missile guided systems for NATO, but they're also making glasses for people like so yeah i i think that these two competing things it doesn't really matter who who wins because they're both kind of awful yeah i mean one of the things that is so bizarre is how we find out that spectacular optical is interested in using max so that they can more or less eliminate perversion right right <laughs> like mm-hmm. they want to use civic tv to broadcast video drums so that we can infect all the viewers give them tumors and have them die and you're just like oh so you're puritanical conservatives yeah and i think i i think that's also interesting because when we look at the 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 mission that max goes to that bianca is basically running mm-hmm. we get there and we walk in and it is just a maze of poorly constructed housing units for the unhomed people. And then right behind it, you go upstairs into this lavish den that is full of like art from priceless art, (laughs) priceless art. And Max makes the comment as he's looking out because it's there's there's curtains, but her view is literally looking down on these poor people. Mm -hmm. And so there's definitely a critique here of like religion because you could take this as sort of the way that um, foundations try to indoctrinate people into their religion and they Absolutely. live in 
in high-rise apartments while everyone else is living in, in squalor is sort of that impression here. So we have this ideology of we need to make sure that everyone is connected to a television as a sort of religion. And then you also have Barry and his his thing more on the the side of technology of being like, yeah, we create missile guidance systems, but we also create things to make people see. But we also think that we want to destroy every all the perversion in the world. And so it's it's interesting to see the way these two ideologies either conflict with each other or also complement each other. I definitely like that they're multifaceted, right? There's there's mm. some kind of a high cam villainy in <laughs> both of the sides of this kind of ideological war. Oh, if they had mustaches, they would be twirling it. <laughs> and yet I, I like that it isn't just, oh, this is the good side and this is the bad side. As you said, neither one of these sides are really very good. And neither one of them are afraid to put Max in the center. You know, they both stick a tape in him to do their bidding and use him as an assassin to go and do the dirty work. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, I love it. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of the tapes we've not mm. really touched on the body <laughs> horrorness of it so terry this is your first watch what did you think of all of the like the handguns the vagina chests and all of the pulsating tapes so i i kind of mentioned this before we started recording but i really did not know what videodrome was about mm -hmm. all i knew was i had seen an image at one time i think it's probably one of the most famous images from this of James Wood sticking his head in the TV. Sure. And so that's like literally the only the only thing I had to go on when I watched mm -hmm. this, when I started watching this movie. And boy, oh boy, is that sort of like the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so a lot of my reactions watching this was like, oh, oh. he has a vagina in his tummy. Mm -hmm. Oh, he has this cancerous gun that is infusing with his body yeah there's a lot of grotesquerie in this oh it's so good and it's so icky right like it, mm -hmm. it's not like clean and kind of antiseptic looking everything no. is either looking very anatomically correct and or goopy yeah so goopy so goopy. <laughs> I also had, and this is like, this is a, a very just a side comment, but as I was watching, there's the moment where his gun is literally fusing to his hand and there's yeah. kind of robotic tentacles coming out of the gun and then just yeah. sort of fusing into his, his skin. And I was watching this and I was like, oh, I know where Nightmare on Elm Street 5 mm -hmm. got its image of Dan driving in a, and he's riding on a, on a motorcycle in his dream and the motorcycle starts to like fuse with his body. And I was like, oh, mm -hmm. that is very similar to this, this moment with this gun. And I'm like, I wonder if this movie influenced sort of some of that imagery. You have to believe so, right? I mean, this movie uh, yeah. wasn't a big hit by any stretch, but it is iconic. And the look mm -hmm. of the two special effects is so similar. It really is. It really is. I mean, of course, Nightmare takes it a bit further with the whole body aspect of it. But, right. Yeah. But like the, the way it, it happens is very much, oh, they were kind of homaging this movie, I would say. Mm hmm. Yeah. Did you have a favorite out of curiosity? Uh, my, well, my favorite gross out moment was when Barry gets killed and his body literally just erupts with cancerous cells, I think, mm -hmm. is, is what I'm, I'm to take from that. Yep. 
I just it, it was it was so it was so gnarly and gross. And there's this brief shot of of his like teeth coming out of like where his mouth has split open. Mm-hmm. And I just I started thinking about that. And I was thinking in particular about how in Possessor, Brandon Cronenberg's movie, how like there's such a focus on a man's teeth getting bashed in. And I was like, I can kind of see a direct correlation between this movie and what happens in that in that film in terms of like the focus on on violence and gore. And so there's like a lot I was just getting a lot of a lot of images in here were sort of reminding me of other movies that probably are taking something from this one. Cause this is, there's a lot of really gross scenes in this. I, I honestly think it's probably his grossest movie to this point. Oh yeah. No, I'd agree with that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really taken with the moment when uh, we put the kind of VR helmet over Max. Okay. I'm I'm not going to suggest that this is the first film to ever kind of play with VR and headsets and that kind of stuff because we were definitely at that moment in the 80s. But this feels so indebted, as you said, to cyberpunk and like William Gibson. And Mm -hmm. it it does feel in some ways like it anticipates other films. Like there's another Canadian movie with Keanu Reeves called Johnny Mnemonic, where he puts on stuff like this and it looks so similar, only a little less bulky because, you know, they redesigned it because it's a little bit more contemporary. It's just really interesting to see how films either are in conversation with one another or they're paying homage to what came before or how they're kind of drawing from similar aesthetic sensibilities and saying like oh okay we're actually having a dialogue in some ways even if we didn't fully intend it it also reminded me a little bit of virtual boy nintendo's failed uh first attempt at vr mm-hmm. in like the in like the 90s uh i what i what i did i did appreciate about the way that that sequence unfolded is when he puts it on everything is so pixelated it looks almost yeah. as if you're playing like a a really poorly pixelated game from that era <laughs> it's like an 8-bit game it really is and i i love the aesthetic that it, it gave of sort of like you can't quite see what's happening you can't make out all the details but you can mm-hmm. sort of infer and i so i love the moment when he's wearing it and i believe it's nikki walks into the into his view and she's all all pixelated and he's like nikki i just i love (laughs) i i just i love it i love the aesthetic of that of that image so what do you think about the aesthetic of some of these hallucinations because i think on a first time watch for a lot of folks it's really difficult when you start to realize oh i can't trust everything that i'm seeing because max is actively hallucinating possibly all of the time so you can really you can have some very interesting conversations with what is real, quote unquote, in Mm. more or less the back half of the film. But I love even the visual aesthetic of the multiple different erotic films that we're seeing, right? So the actual video drum broadcast, which looks very Asian in form to me, like the fact that Cronenberg actively knows we have racist tendencies and he says yeah it's from Malaysia and you're like of course it's from Malaysia look at this (laughs) setting 
But it's, you know, kind of contrasted by Masha's softcore pornography, which is, you know, very Greek. Apollo and, and Dionysus. Fucking hell. <laughs> but then we also see the the um, the Japanese one as well, right? When Max goes to look at the video cassettes early in the film and you're just like, this is so interesting. The kind of relationship between exoticization and fetishization. Mm. Fetishization. Um, <laughs> basically, like the, the way that we look at sex as an inherently exotic and foreign entity i also just really love that the geisha was hiding a dildo in a <laughs> geisha outfit <laughs> apparently they shot a whole like fake video of that that's amazing i was like <laughs> get it girl i love that 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 love is it. that is fantastic that you're literally popping the head off of this geisha mm-hmm. and I, I think there's like almost a kind of subtle satire there of like the idea of geisha being a sexual object and oh, yeah. she literally has the sexual object that is dressed up as a geisha like mm-hmm. the, the, the that is the fetishize fetish oh my god i cannot speak it's I can't hard say that right word. it's a hard it word is a say. hard word <laughs> The fetishization of that sort of otherly culture, and I'm using that in quotation marks, listeners, that sort of other aspect of it. And the fact that we are like programmed to think, oh, of course, this came from Malaysia, when in fact it's coming from the heart of of the United States is is a definite subtle little nab Mm -hmm. there, a little jab. Yeah, I'm not going to say it's a Canadian sensibility, but it definitely feels like a Canadian looking at Americans and pointing the finger. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Terry, I'm interested. What do you make of the end of this movie? Because as I said, there's a lot of debate about what we can trust of what we're seeing because we're informed by Max's point of view and he's the one hallucinating. But then it all ends in this very nihilistic ending right where he either is transcending and joining the fight against what remains a videodrome or he has been tricked into dying by suicide oh yeah and this is where like i kind of wish i had more time to like re-watch this and watch it a few times because mm-hmm. So it's it's hard. Okay, it's hard to talk about this movie from 2023 when there are so many things that have come out since then mm-hmm. that are probably aping this style. Because I started thinking when as I was watching this that this story, not in terms of like themes, but in terms of just the way it unfolds, mm-hmm. reminds me a lot of a video game called Max Payne. I don't know if you're familiar with it. They made a horrible. I was going to say I'm familiar with the terrible film. <laughs> yeah, but like. In Max Payne, the video game is definitely a noir type aesthetic, but it gets into these weird cults and he like there's like drugs involved that are hallucinatory. Mm-hmm. And by the end of it, Max is is falling into a nihilistic like a spiral roll of a pond. Yeah, like it, it's it's very familiar to the way that uh, things unfold for well, Max in this movie, his name's Max, right? right? <laughs> hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so it, it definitely is unfolding in a very similar way to a very nihilistic ending point of Max's lowest part of his life. And in both of these cases, that is the case. And so I was, I, it was very eye-opening to see how how many things, even things that aren't really sci-fi related, mm-hmm. um, owe a debt to what David has done in these films, particularly this one. Right. Yeah. 
I wish that there was somewhere where you could look and I mean, I know IMDb has a connections part, but I don't mm. always trust the information on IMDb no. anymore. <laughs> No. But you can you can sometimes get a, a sense of, oh, OK, this film is either aping or paying homage or gently riffing or, yes, connecting to an earlier film. But it would be fascinating to see how many people watch Videodrome and then it just subtly creeps into a future project of theirs because it has achieved this kind of iconic status or because the imagery is so indelible and so on. Yeah. And so when we're talking about the the ending of this, on my first watch, and I don't, I just, this is my immediate gut reaction. It is very, it's very nihilistic in the way that I feel he just becomes a pawn by the end mm -hmm. of this, end of this movie. And there is no transcendental transformation for him. It is, right. he is done everything they need to do. He's already on the lamb because the police mm -hmm. are looking at him for the murders he's committed or yep. murders that he didn't commit. And by this point, there is nothing left for him to do. And he is useless to the cause. Right. He just needs to get rid of himself so that when people find him, they're just going to assume, Oh, he killed everyone. And then he, he offed himself as opposed to what's really going on. Mm -hmm. I just, yeah, I was, I was not, I guess I should have been surprised, should not have been surprised, but I was, I was a little surprised at how, deeply nihilistic this film was and maybe that's because you see universal studios right in the very beginning <laughs> of this film and this does not feel like a movie that universal studios would have been releasing right i mean what's shocking is when you look at it and you think it's a great picture it's got some hugely ambitious ideas incredibly well shot the special effects are a fucking amazing i should know oh, these so are good. groundbreaking special effects for the time and then you think Oh, somebody thought that they could put this out as a wide release and make money. <laughs> and I'm not I, suggesting I, like, like, I look at Cronenberg's career, and I'm frankly amazed that he ever managed to make commercial films or to lure American stars to come to Canada and be in these movies. I love it. But also, I am genuinely perplexed that people continue to give him money based on his track record of just sheer what the fuckery is going on in these movies. That was another thing that that really popped in my head, because as I was starting this again, I'm watching not to keep harping on it, but I'm seeing that Universal Studios picture moniker. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking today, if someone were to go from making an independent kind of grotesque art film to making a big budget studio film. Mm hmm. My immediate thought is, oh, they're going to sell out. There's going to be a lot of red tape. There's going to be a lot of things pulling them down in terms yeah. of like, we can't show this. We have to hit four quadrants. We have to do this. We yeah. have to do that. Got to compromise. We got to compromise. And watching this, and I was thinking, there really feels like no compromise in this. No. I was <laughs> genuinely auteur status here. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So the fact that, that, <laughs> that Cronenberg could make a Universal Pictures movie, but still somehow be grosser and more sexual, more overtly sexual than his earlier works of art. I just it's mm -hmm. it's it's amazing to me. Like it made me smile. I laughed when I was over when I was finished. This I was like, I cannot believe Universal Studios did this <laughs> is really right? my, my reaction because you would not <laughs> see that today. What kind of hallucinatory visions were they having that they gave him all this money for it? <laughs> I know. Well, it, it's wild too, right? Because you mentioned Brandon and 
Brandon mm-hmm. has clearly followed in his father's footsteps while mm-hmm. still doing his own thing. Like, I I really genuinely dislike it when people just say, oh, Brandon Cronenberg is just a, a derivative of his father because I think he Same. very much has his own tastes and interests. It's just that he clearly also has an affection for his father's movies. But, like, he's not making universal films he's not making warner brothers or paramount movies he's making movies with neon that you know get released in a couple hundred theaters so i i do think that this is the difference between making a movie like this in 1983 versus making infinity pool say in 2022 Mm. yeah i could i could see that i do think the 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 studio system has changed a whole lot since those early days Mm mm-hmm yeah, I, I can't I can't honestly imagine seeing Brandon being able to do what he's doing in like the the big picture arena. I mean, mm-hmm. both of his movies had to be shown unrated because they had right. NC-17 cuts, which, again, kind of harkens back to some of the things that I think Cronenberg had to to rail against in terms of like there was a comment where his first original script for this movie, he says, oh, this is a triple X movie like just <laughs> could see it. <laughs> yeah, because like some of the things and I wish I, I had that article up still, but there were, there was an article kind of digging into if he had filmed what he initially had had written, it would have right. been somehow even more wilder than what we got. Mm. And so I, I think about that with this film and I'm like, what what did Universal see? Because what we get is maybe a little bit more toned down than what was in that initial script. But I'm like, the fact that <laughs> that he was given an opportunity to to make this film and not mm-hmm. deviate from his core principles is just, I don't know, it's lightning in a bottle. Absolutely. Well, I wonder if maybe we can wrap up with one sort of final conversation. We talked early on about sexuality when we were introducing mm-hmm. Nikki, and I think there's a good conversation to be had there. But, you know, when we think about the rating, the fact that it could have been harder, but also most of the kind of controversial content in this film is not actually sex-based. It's just sexualized, right? So Mm. I guess I'm curious, because we also haven't really talked about the queerness in this movie. Do you think that that's how he was able to skirt around some of the ratings board's issues? Because it's either violence or it's like weird sexuality, but we're not like showing erect penises or something. So it's funny that you bring this up because last night when I sat down to watch this movie and again, I was taking my civic TV to my bed and <laughs> looking at, at TikTok as I was laying in bed and I'm just scrolling mindlessly through these videos and I come across this video of this man who is um, shirtless and he's bigger but seems fit mm-hmm. and he's wearing a mask and the... Ooh. It's like a skeleton mask and there is like this weird look to it and there's this giant tarp behind him and it feels dirty in a way that reminds me a little bit of Carter Smith's All the Dead Boys type of. Right. That is like mixing sex and violence and there he just Mm -hmm. is sitting there staring at the camera through his his mask and it's live and people are joining and it is just literally the shirtless man with this kind of creepy mask, just staring at the camera in a place that looks like you will either be involved in some <laughs> kind of S and M torture or you right. might be murdered or maybe both. Maybe both. Why not both? I wasn't even thinking as I, I posted this on Twitter, I wasn't even thinking about the connection to Videodrome. And then 
Sam Barlow, who is a game designer who also loves mystery and he loves Cronenberg, responded and with a picture, um, Nikki standing in the red room. And he's like, right. if you see if you see uh, the video or you see I can't remember exactly what he said, but it's something to the point. If you see this, you got to get out of there. And I was like, this is <laughs> this is a perfect it's a synchronicity. The fact that I was yeah. just watching this movie, I hadn't even t- posted on Twitter that I was watching this movie. And then that's the first thought is that this is pulling from Cronenberg mm-hmm. reminded me. And again, in this image, there's nothing to suggest overt sexuality, but it is sexual. This man sitting yes. there, it's, it's hot, but also dangerous at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so to go back to what your question is, yes, I think that there is something to do here. And I think there might be a little twinkle in Cronenberg's eye as he's doing this because he understands that violence is more socially acceptable yes. than, than sex. And so the fact that we are not seeing this woman in the Videodrome being sexually tortured, like raped or anything, we are seeing exactly. her just be flogged and beaten, mutilated, yeah. tortured, that kind of stuff. But it's not overtly sexual. Yes, there is mm-hmm. a hint of, of sex and violence in here, but it is not visually that that i think yeah. that i think i do think that he's playing with something here and maybe as you suggested that is kind of how he got around the more harsher rating because what we see is more violence than it is sex if that makes sense it does i just i think it's so deeply ironic because i remember the first time i watched this movie it struck me full in the face that when he discovers that vaginal slit in his abdomen, he's literally holding a gun in his hand and his first mm. impulse is to stick his hand and the gun into it. And I'm just like, yes, it's sex and violence right there. Mm-hmm. And nobody bats an eye because, oh, well, it's horrific. It's a monstrous thing. It's not real. It's a hallucination. And I just think this is more graphic than a lot of like any other softcore porn recreation that we see in the film. Yeah, it is literally a slit in his stomach that he is sticking a phallic gun into. Like the implication behind that is is so gnarly mm-hmm. <laughs> that I just I can't <laughs> believe that that the one like said, oh, there is something very sexual about this because it right. it is combining the idea of violence in one hand and sex in the other in mm-hmm. such a very intimate way of actually putting something inside your body that is violence. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the fact that it's repeatedly a man who is violated or mm-hmm. who is penetrated in this film, right? Like even the moment that you mentioned off the top where Max sticks his head into the TV, you know, sure, you could read that as, oh, his head is the phallus and it's Nikki's lips are are the vaginal cavity or something like that. And yet right. there's still something passive about the way that max is just used he's a pawn as we said repeatedly like i love that a man is basically feminized or treated the way that a woman would normally be treated in other films yeah same yeah (laughs) i hadn't even really put that together until until like you were talking and like but no that's that's very that's very true huh i am curious though because you've asked me my thoughts on the ending, I, but I, as someone that has watched this film numerous times, what is your kind of interpretation of the way uh, the movie ends in terms of the the two competing ideologies and Max's role in it? I'm curious. 
I mean, I definitely think that there's a mental health reading to be read of this, or like a mental okay. illness, rather, where he's not getting radio frequencies. He doesn't have brain tumors or any of this stuff. It's that Max loses his mind because mm. he is mentally ill. He kills his partners. He kills what he perceives to be is a malicious entity in this spectacular optical company and then he realizes his life is over and he dies by suicide so i think that there's that very sort of grim reading yeah. i think i'm more inclined to read it the way you did which is that he was a pawn he was used by these corporations via the tapes of the signals or just mind control and then when he no longer can serve a purpose they eliminate him yeah which i mean i think is uh capitalism right oh sure <laughs> it's like yeah <laughs> we're going to use you up we're going to get everything that we possibly can out of you and then mm -hmm. okay goodbye you're fired yeah little shades of a eraser head there too hey oh yeah absolutely he's just a cog in these machines yep just getting chewed up and spit out Mm-hmm. just like a tape <laughs> Just like, oh, my God. OK, I, I know we, we briefly talked on it, but the, the effects in this, I just I was really blown away with I, that. Mm -hmm. tape. The first time he's holding the tape and the uh, I, I don't even I don't know what the technical term is, but the kind of sprockets, the things that it just the pulses, parts just like pulsed at that point. I was like, oh, God, what is that? What is happening? I was not prepared for that. And yeah. then the way that technology takes on a more uh, human tone to it, the fact that the TV starts to like look as if it's made mm -hmm. of human skin and starts yep. pulsating and there's that really cool vein moment that sort of <sighs> pops out on the top of it i love the vein i love how good this movie looks and a lot of it i think holds up to today mm -hmm. yeah i would say that the probably the worst effect is maybe when the gun connects with his hand Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I say worst, it's, oh, it's the worst of a bunch of really fucking outstanding effects that do, I think, agree with you. They very much hold up. And I just, I man, I love practical effects because mm. I, there's something tangible to him. And so the fact that yeah. he is able to interact with this TV in, a, in such a sexual way mm -hmm. is something that if it was filmed today and it wasn't done with practical effects, it would not have that same sense of danger to it. Mm hmm. There's a visceral effect to this, right? That feels very tangible, like it's gritty and seedy and sexual and dangerous. And I would owe a lot of that to the look of these practical effects. It brings us into the world as opposed to CGI fakery, which can often give that artificial vibe. And as a result, mm -hmm. we are taken out. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I'm so glad that you've seen this because also this will pay off when we watch the not quite sequel, but I consider it a sequel existence later. So I'm, I'm glad you also mentioned that because when, when I was looking up, I saw that this is sort of like the start of an, an informal trilogy of films is what people were is, is what something I saw on the Internet with this existence. And then they also compared it to uh, Crimes of the Future. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah. His most recent one. Mm hmm. Neither yeah. of which I've seen, so. <laughs> uh, it's going to be so good. And and this level of practical effects and the kind of escalation in storytelling and confidence and mastery, it's like we hit the accelerator from this point on. This is really when the good stretch of body horror shit starts. 
Yeah, I, I was thinking I, as I was watching this, I was thinking about how, you know, I think for a lot of people, The Fly is sort of the more mainstream mm-hmm. accessible film of his that sort of right. deals in, in body horror. But like this movie right here feels light years beyond what he was doing before in terms of confidence of storytelling. Mm-hmm. I, I think that even though it's it's weird to me that he was writing I saw something, I think it was on Wikipedia, that he was basically writing this all the way through filming. So he was making changes to the script the entire time. Right. It doesn't feel that way. It doesn't Mm-mm. because we had the same thing with Scanners where he kind of had to write the story very quickly. And so there's some parts of it that might not necessarily make sense in terms of narrative cohesiveness. Right. But I don't feel that here. This feels no. like a, a perfectly realized piece of fiction from the start. And mm-hmm. I think that that just shows how much he has grown as a creator, that he could make these last minute changes as he needed, but it still feels, even as they're shooting, and yet it still feels like a very cohesive story that fits together perfectly. And I just think as much as people are going to say that the the fly is like his most mainstream, I think mm-hmm. this is right now my favorite of his films just because of how cohesive and sexy, and surreal, and horrifying, <laughs> he has managed to, to create with this film. Yeah, oh, that's really interesting. I'm excited to now watch the next couple of films, particularly the revisit of The Fly, because you've seen The Fly, so you know what yep. to expect. And I'm wondering how you will feel about that film in relationship to this now that you've seen this um because you're right i mean i think the thing that people latch onto in terms of the commercial viability of the fly is that you've got that romance and that's not something that you're going to get until the fly yeah yeah because everything else is like it's it's men who are either scientists or lone wolves and they get embroiled in something and it kind of kicks their ass and probably kills them and the fly is like, ooh, but what if we also had a love interest? Yeah, because even even here, like, I don't feel that the relationships between the characters are particularly um, about love. It's about mm-hmm. sex. It's about yeah. getting off. And that's something that I think his films have sort of explored up to this point of sort of like the idea of free love or the like the idea of just basically having casual sex. And that's going to, that's absolutely going to change when we hit the fly. Mm -hmm. So I I think that's, I think it's interesting to see that kind of growth too here. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Agreed. (laughs) Fully agreed. (laughs) All right. Uh, Well, Terry, before we talk about where we're going to head next, uh, if people want to chat about first time impressions of Videodrome with you, how would they get in touch? Uh, you would find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Gaily Dreadful. And Joe, if they want to try to indoctrinate you into the Cathoid Ray mission, how would they get in touch with you? And would you say yes? <laughs> oh, I would 100% say yes. It, it looks like a decent time. And also they were serving food there. So it's basically entertainment and food. I'm down. There you go. And I can be reached at B Stole My Remote, and that's the letter B. And I'll uh, give a shout out to the Anatomy of a Screen Pod Squad Network for hosting the show. 
So, Terry, it's time now to flip back to the Lynch side of the podcast. And folks, uh, as you know, we are still in Twin Peaksville. So because this is a TV show and two episodes are kind of equivalent to a film, we're going to continue our journey through season one by watching episodes two and three of the first season. And I'm really excited looking at um, the images on IMDb because it looks as if episode three has the red room which uh-huh. kind of ties into um the red rooms we saw in this episode Ooh, yeah <laughs> maybe a little less sexy but definitely no <laughs> less surreal <laughs> all right folks well until we head back to that red room and uh twin peaks we will talk to you later Scream Pod Squad.